All right, if I could draw you back to your seats. While you're going there, um, I want to offer a great deal for you. On the back table, there are Central Prez mugs. One of the things that happens when you change your name, it costs money. And one of the ways that it costs money is items that we once had that we no longer need. And so for those of you that love the name Central Prez, we've got these beautiful mugs as a memento for you. Free. Free for you. Um, yeah. Scott is m- modeling them for us right now. It's beautiful. Wow, look at that. You know what's one nice thing about those mugs is that they're, they're, it's like a perfect size of, of coffee. Like it's not so much that where you're like you know, strung out on caffeine all morning long. It's just a, just a perfect amount. And so one of the nice things about those mugs is it gives you a perfect amount of coffee. So I'm glad you guys did. Please take them. Um, they're great. One fun story, then I'll, I'll jump into our... Um, I mentioned Dunbar Ogden um, to you last week in a sermon. Dunbar Ogden was the previous... I guess there was... you know, I'm the church planning pastor. There was no other pastor before me in his church. But there was a Central Presbyterian Church of Little Rock at one point, And one of the most infamous, um, or famous, not infamous, pastors of Central Pres was a guy named Dunbar Ogden. And he was the one that walked with the Little Rock Nine. And I read, I read his book, I've read it a couple times now. And his book is written by Dunbar Ogden Jr. And so Kimberly wrote him an email last week, Dunbar Ogden Jr., just telling him about how his book has meant a lot to us. He emailed us back. It was really neat. And so it felt like I was interacting with one of my, my, a character from one of my favorite books of all time. Um, so a really neat thing about uh, that is just a small little touch. And thanks to Kimberly for reaching out to him. And he's 83 years old and lives in New York City. Um, and uh, he, was, he was really touched that uh, we've remembered his father and read his book and things like that. So beautiful. Um, well, hey, we've been studying um, the vision of our church. And um, this will be the last week in which we do that. Um, and I've had this prepared statement um, the last two weeks, and I'm going to do it again because I think it's vitally important to put before you to set the framework for what we're talking about. At the heart of every organization is its mission. The mission gives the organization its focus and direction. And at Central, it is our mission to be loved and to love. That is to humble ourselves before God and one another that we might receive the love of God and to receive the love of our neighbor. It is vital that we do this because it is the very basis for which we live God's purpose for our life, to love. As the Apostle John reminds us in his epistle, we love because he first loved us. So we love having been loved. And we love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. It is this mission that gives our community its focus and direction. It characterizes what I hope this whole church is about. To be loved and to love. What are we about? Be loved and to love. But of course this mission isn't easy. I'm convinced that the greatest problem in the North American church, including our church alone, is not a willingness to move into hard places, but rather allowing others to move in the hard places of our own lives. That is, to be loved ourselves. We are prideful, stubborn, insolent, self-sufficient, self-righteous, and so much more. So to be loved becomes an assault to our own dignity, to our own honor, and to our own pride. And then likewise, the call to love God, to actually move into difficult situations, is hard too. 
to learn about God, to study His Word, worship the Creator rather than the created, is, is tough. It requires our mental capacity. It requires us to be disciplined. It requires us to put things aside that we, we've held on to for a long time. And then to love our neighbors is tough too because they can be stubborn. They can be difficult. They can be insolent. They can be prideful. And so how in the world do we move into a place where we allow others to love us and then move into a place where we love others? How do we do this? Well, we need to see a picture. We need to consider and dream what pursuing this mission can accomplish. That is, we need a vision. And I'm convinced, regardless of the organization, that there's no greater fuel to the mission than its vision. In in embracing a vision, it reminds us that all the hard and demanding work on the front end is ultimately worth it. And so for that reason, I've spent the last three weeks looking and considering at our vision as a church. What is our vision? That we might be fueled in our mission. Well, what is our vision? Well, our vision is this. Transformed lives, transformed city. We believe, and I know this for a fact, that if we be loved and love, we will see transformed lives and we will see a transformed city. We've taken some time to some case studies on this vision and we've looked at what it looks like to go from entitled to thankful. And then last week we looked at the importance of being scandalously hospitable to see this vision become more of a reality. And this morning, the case study we're going to be looking at is the case study of generous living. And we're going to use three different biblical texts to help us get to this place of generous living. If you have a sermon outline or bulletin, you can see that the three different Scripture texts come from Luke 16, 2 Corinthians 8, and 1 Timothy 6. I'm going to read this now. First, Luke 16, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 2 Corinthians 8, 8 and 9. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Lastly, 1 Timothy 6, 17, 18, and 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good work, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. i got a hypothetical question to ask you. If you were to name the most important organization outside the church, because I know the church, you all believe the church is the most important organization in Little Rock, okay? So outside the church, what do you think the most important organization in the city of Little Rock? Just think for a moment. What is the most transformative organization in all of the city? I did this thought. I had this thought this, this, uh, this week. And I thought, you know what? I think it's UAMS. I did some 
factual studies on UAMS, which is the hospital just south of, I mean, literally a couple blocks from here. UAMS employs 10,000 people. 10,000 employees just south of here, just a few blocks from here. On top of the 10,000 employees, there are 3,000 students that are on that campus throughout the week. 3,000. So you've got 13,000 people on the campus of UAMS throughout the week. Now, if you think about that, that is the heart of a thriving city. I, I don't know the, the number of cities in Arkansas that don't even have 10,000 people in it, but I know that there are a lot of cities in the state of Arkansas that don't have 10,000 people, yet UAMS, an organization just south of here, employs 10,000 and educates 3,000. That is a vital piece to our city. If we want to see our city thrive and see our city become prosperous in a place of justice, you better believe UAMS is a vital piece to that. Think about the number of jobs that 10,000 people bring with them. The lawyers, the insurance agents, the financial advisors, the educators, the churches, the restaurants, the real estate, the pharmacists, the recreational activities that all surround 10,000, 13,000 people. Think about that. It's a transforming agent for our city. But as important as UAMS is to transforming our city, for the better, the truth of it is that they can't make it on their own. It's very well known that UAMS struggles financially. Um, within the last few years, there was, uh, it hit the news that they were in serious, serious debt and changes need to be made. And for that reason, the institution has had to rely on generous giving from people within the community for it to survive. And we are reminded of this reality when we drive on Interstate 630 and we look to the buildings that make up UAMS and we start to see buildings like Jackson Stevens Institute of Neurosciences and Spines, Donald Reynolds Institute of Aging. And we see these names that are on top of these buildings reminding us, hey, these buildings can't be here. This institution cannot survive without the generous giving of the people of this community. And those names are a reminder to all of us of the importance of generous giving for the transformation of our city. It is the same for the church. But I would say this, it is actually far more important. I meant the hypothetical thing, but here's, the, here's what I want to say. There is nothing more important to the transformation of this city than the church itself, which includes us. We're not the only church in this city. There's certainly plenty of churches that preach the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. But we are certainly a vital piece to the transformation of our city. We might not employ 10,000 or educate 3,000. We might be a small community in the middle of Hillcrest. But I am convinced that there is nothing more important for this city than the church itself. And just as UAMS leans on the people of this community and their generous giving to survive and to transform our city for good, so too does the church rely on the people of the church and their generous giving for the transformation of souls. As a church, we want to see people transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want people who think they aren't deserving of God's grace to hear of the truth of a gracious God who offers His grace despite their deserving. 
We want to see lives that are heading south to be radically transformed in a moment by the healing and the hope of the gospel. In the same manner, we want to see our city transformed. We don't want to be known as a city filled with violence and racial divide, but a city known for its quality of life, its peace, its justice, and wisdom. And as a church, we can bring this here if we are defined by generous living. This morning, it is my hope to present to you what it means to be uh, defined by generous living. And I've got three different aspects of, of, of generous living that I want to, to look at so that we might become defined by generous living. So the first aspect we're going to look at this morning to generous living is the barrier to generous living. Why is it we are so reluctant to be generous with our lives? Of course, we look at Luke 16, 13, and we get to find our answer. Jesus is concluding on a teaching on money And he says this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, Jesus is comparing money to God in this statement, and he's just speaking to it practically, that people treat both God and money as masters. That money dictates how we live just as God can dictate how we live. That money can dictate what we worship just as God dictates who we worship. And Jesus makes it very clear that you cannot do both at the same time. You cannot serve both God and money. So what is the barrier to our generosity? I think Jesus gives us the answer right here. Our barrier to our generosity is seeing money as our master rather than God. I think we all know the feeling of bowing the knee to money as a master. No, I'm not talking about you getting in your house and getting on your knees and saying, money, you're worthy, you're worthy, or having some religious ceremony in your house where you're praying to money. I don't think you're doing that. But serving money as a master is a commitment and allegiance to money that dictates our will, our thoughts, and our emotions. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been anxious in regards to money? (laughs) I know I have. Have you ever been frustrated when talking about money? I know I have. You see, we have a proclivity in our own hearts to bow our knee to money. Many of you don't even like the fact that I'm talking about money right now. Or you might be in your own mind going, oh, here we go, another sermon on money. I'm not telling you what to do with your money. I just want to expose one of the barriers that all of us have towards generosity, which is a transforming agent. And that money is our master. And so to talk about it and to address it is to offend your master. I mean, it's no surprise that many of us make money our master. I understand this deeply myself. Because money becomes something that we tangibly use to meet our needs. Money gives us food to eat, clothes to wear, homes to live in, cars to drive, the ability to travel. If one, if one doesn't think about it, we think that money is what is giving us all that we have or all that we can do. Of course, we know as Christians that money is not the God, that God is the one who provides us these things, but we are easily duped to think that money is our ultimate 
Master. And this is exactly what Jesus is exposing in Luke 16. But here's the thing about this. We have this barrier in our lives, this dependence on money, and this looking to money to give us happiness and satisfaction. But I want to think about money as a master. God, Jesus compares God and money as masters. And here's what I want to do. I want to remove this barrier. And the way that I want to remove the barrier of money is first by showing you the type of master that money is. What type of master is money? Well, money is a demanding master. There's always money to be made. If you make a lot, there's always more money to be made. If you make a lot and you purchase a lot, there's always another item to purchase. There's always another trip to go on. There's always another person to make more money than. Money is a demanding master. It will require you to work, to pursue, and to desire more. It never ends. Never ends. It creates this scarcity mindset that if I were to give my money away, then I wouldn't have enough. Then I wouldn't have that new car. Then I wouldn't have that new house. Money is a demanding master that never allows you to quit. You bow the knee to money and you will be exhausted, anxious, strung out. It'll wear you out. If we're going to remove the barrier, that is, remove the master of money from our, our, our lives, we have to get very serious about the type of master money is. You tired of bowing the knee to money? Are you tired of being anxious about every paycheck? Are you tired? Well, it's because money is your master. If we're going to be generous, be defined as generous and living generously, we've got to see the barrier to our generous living. That money as our master is a demanding, and it is a demanding, tirelessly burden of our lives. We're going to be defined as generous living. We've got to see the barrier. But secondly, not only do we need to see the barrier and remove that barrier, we need to see the basis for our generous living. The basis for generous living. And we find this basis in 2 Corinthians 8. In 2 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in the city of Corinth. And he's writing to compel them to be generous like the givers of the Macedonians, which is another area of the Roman Empire. And his most compelling argument in his letter for the church in Corinth to be generous comes in these two verses. Let's look at what he says. He says this, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, that is the Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. And here's the compelling argument that he makes for the basis of our generosity. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. In this understanding of who God is, that Paul articulates primarily in verse 9, Paul gives us the basis for our generosity. And the basis for our generosity resides in the very character of our God. Paul is taking us to consider who God is. Now we just considered who money is. Who is our God? Taking us back to Luke 16, Jesus compares money as a master and God as a master. And here Paul tells us 
what God is as our master. The question I have for you, is God as demanding as money? Will God wear you out like money will? We're reminded in these verses that that's not the case. You know, many of us think that God is this demanding, ah, coming to get you. It's this tireless thing. We literally have it upside down in the church. We think we get worn out by God, not get worn out by money. It's actually the opposite. We're worn out by money and not by God. If we're worn out by God, what happens is we actually have a a poor understanding of who God is. Who is our God? What is the basis for our generous giving and living? It is God Himself. What does Paul say about the character of God in verse 9? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Question. Do you know God's wealth? We just read in CBR, for those of you who don't know CBR, we read... Uh, Two passages of Scripture throughout the week. We read an Old Testament passage and we read a New Testament passage each and every day. And we've been reading through Revelation. And the symbolism of Revelation is astounding. It talks about the jewels and the walls of the New Jerusalem that are coming down. It talks about the streets being gold. It talks about some of the most beautiful imagery that you can think of. And what's the point of the imagery? Our God is wealthy. He's got more money than you can ever dream of. The psalmist in, 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 uh, says this in Psalm 50, For every beast of the forest is mine, speaking, this is God speaking, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field. All of that is mine. Our God is rich. All that He has, all that we see is His. And the question for you and me is, do we know how wealthy God is? At the same time, do we know the wealth that God gave up? How He was willing to leave the throne room of heaven and be born in a manger scene. Born in the midst of poverty. Born to a scandalous uh, situation. Do we know that? Why would God do that? He did that so that He could come into the midst of our own poverty. So the question is, do you know God's wealth, but do you know your poverty? Not just the fact that Anything you have is because God has given it to you, but of the fact that you left to yourselves are spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing to give to yourself, not even your righteousness. You're poor before God. And Paul is saying, do you not know the God who gave up all His wealth to come to you in the midst of your poverty, your physical poverty, your spiritual poverty, your emotional poverty, so that He might replace that for you. We know that ultimately that He went to the cross that He might pay the payment that our spiritual poverty deserved. That we in our sin accrued this incredible debt before God. And He paid that price for us in His cross. And He forgave us. And not only that, He clothed us in His righteousness. Do you see what He says? The basis for our of our generous living is the generous giving of God Himself to us. He is not a demanding God. He's a gracious God. 
One of my favorite videos on um, the wealth comes from this man named Chapath Palihapitiya. He's a venture capitalist and he's one of the owners of the Golden State Warriors. In a video that he did with Stanford Business School, he gave a little bit of his history and where he went. And it's a well-known fact that Chamath is a very generous tipper. In fact, if he goes to dinner, which he does, like we all do all the time, if the bill is, say, $400, it is not uncommon for him to tip $1,000 on a $400 meal. $1,000. I can't do the math in my head, but that's a lot of percent more than what that is. I'm just used to the 20%, like 10, 10, boom. Here he is dropping $1,000 tips on a $400 meal. And of course, the, 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 the interview between the Stanford, why do you do this? And do you know what he said? Because I knew what it was like to be poor and to be given too generously. You see, he remembers working at the Burger King. And he remembers trying to work into to the financial world. And he remembers the generous gifts that many people had given to him so that he might make his way up. And he says, I'm just simply giving because I have been given to greatly. I love that story. Because it is a beautiful story of a man who understands the generosity of others that have been given to him. How he in his poverty became rich. And all he wants to do is give back. You see, as Christians, we have so much more to give. We have so much more to give back because we have so much more than just a leg up. A new job. An opportunity. You see, we've been given life by God Himself. And He's given it to us graciously. What is the basis for our generosity? It is the very character of God who has graciously given us all things. My favorite pastor, outside of myself, of course, (laughs) is Tim Keller. Many of you guys know this. And listen to what he says. The solution to our stinginess is a reorientation to the generosity of Christ in the Gospel. How He poured out His wealth for you. Now you don't have to worry about money because the cross proves God's care for you and gives you security. Now you don't have to envy anyone else's money. Jesus' love and salvation coffers on you a remarkable status, one that money cannot give you. Money cannot save you from tragedy or give you control in a chaotic world. Only God can do that. What breaks the power of money over us is not just redoubled effort to follow the example of Christ, Rather, it is deepening in our understanding of the salvation of Christ, what you have in Him, and living out the changes that the understanding makes in your heart. What's the basis for our generous living? It's the generous living of Christ to us in our poverty. If we're going to be defined as a generous people, transforming our community, we need to understand what the basis of our generous living is. And we need to see the barrier for that as well. But lastly, we got to see how generous living begins. What is the beginning of generous living? We find our answer in 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. And in this passage, what, what I want to propose to you is a very practical plan for how we can become generous givers, generous livers. Let's look at what Paul says to Timothy, his person he raised up in a church 
in the city of Ephesus. Listen to what he says. As for the church in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There are three practical steps that Paul gives to Timothy that he might lead this church in Ephesus to become generous livers and givers. And the three practical steps is this. First, the proper perspective. First, the proper perspective. Secondly, the actual provision. And lastly, patience. There are three practical, I guess you call them steps. We need to have the proper perspective. We need to be Uh, providers and we need to be patient. So what are these three practical steps for how we can be generous? First, we need the proper perspective. And this is what I've sought to be bringing to you today. But look at what Paul says. He's not condemning the wealthy, mind you. He's not saying you are evil if you have wealth. You are evil if you are rich. He just says this. Do not be haughty or arrogant. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Set your hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The money in your bank account is not an indicator of whether or not you are evil or good. It's not. Paul just says, hey, we need the proper perspective of our money. That the money that we have in our bank account comes ultimately from God. And we don't boast in our own abilities or our own skills and the workforce or whatever, we boast in God. We have the proper perspective. Money is not our master. God is our master. And yes, God uses money as a means to change. We put money in our proper perspective. We've got to do that. If we're going to begin to be generous, we've got to have money in its proper perspective. It's not evil. It's used by God. But it comes from God. Secondly, the second step is that we've got to provide. Look at what he says. Be ready to do good. Be ready to share. Do good works. The question I have for you, are you ready? Do you live your life paycheck to paycheck, not setting aside money that you might be ready to do good? You've heard it said before, I'm sure, but I'm going to say it to you because if you haven't heard it, it's really good to know. If you were to show me your checkbook or your bank statement and your calendar, I can show you who your God is. Show me your bank account. Show me your calendar. And I will show you who your God is. Are you living your life in such a way that you're ready to do good work? Are you living your life in such a way that you're able to give your money, your time, your talent away? Or is your money and is your calendar going to things that are solely about you and your own happiness and your own abilities? and all, It's all wrapped up in you, is it? It's a great just kind of where am I at? Can you provide like that? Can you? We have to be able to be ready to give and ready to do good works if we are going to be generous givers and livers. Are we prepared? 
There's many ways in which we can prepare. We can sit down and do a budget and figure out how much of our money we want to live off of. How much money do we actually want to spend on ourselves? And there's so many incredible resources. I mean, I can help you. I'm not your guy, but um, there's just ways in which we can prepare to live more generously so that we might provide. But lastly, not only do we need a perspective not only do we need to be ready to provide and to provide when, 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 the, when, the when it becomes necessary, we need to have patience. And this is what Paul tells Timothy to tell that, the church. Store up treasures for the future. There is, a, there is a, a patience that we need. Rather than satisfying ourselves in the present moment, thinking, man, if I just had that purse, or man, if I just had the ability... To have that one thing, I'd be finally happy. Not realizing, let's be patient. You know, maybe I don't need another purse. Maybe I don't need a new car. Maybe it's okay. Rather, storing up treasures for heaven. And that's what we need. We need to be patient. You know, the, this life is not about bringing items for our own lives. It's, it's not about even having our names put on buildings like Donald Reynolds and Jackson Stevens has. Because even that is somewhat of a vanity and things like that. No, we store up treasures in heaven. And we be patient. Even if no one recognizes our generous giving and our generous living, we know that our Heavenly Father sees it. So if we're going to be generous givers, we've got to begin. And we begin with the plan. And that plan includes a perspective. It, it, it includes giving provisions and lastly, having patience. You know, in conclusion, it's not our hope to lead this lasting legacy where everyone looks at who we are. That church is amazing. It's not even about having our names put on buildings like I just mentioned. It's not about leaving a lasting legacy where it's all about us. Our legacy that we seek to pursue is the legacy of names written in the book of life. We pursue and we give generously our lives, our money, our everything. That there would be names written in the book of life for eternity. There is no greater calling on our lives to see lives changed, not only in the present, but for the future. And if we're going to get there, if we're going to see lives change for eternity, we've got to be defined as generous people. We've got to remove that barrier of money from our lives. We've got to take the proper basis for our generosity, which is Christ Himself crucified for us. And we need to begin following the steps, having the proper perspective, being ready to give and provide, and having patience. My friends, let's do this. It's hard. I know it's hard. But let's do this that we might leave an eternal legacy. Let me pray. Our gracious God, if there's one thing that's very difficult for all of us to do, it is to give of that which we hold on so tightly. To give our time away and to give our treasures away. But I pray that in beholding Your generosity to us, that we would find anew the ability to let go of that which holds on to us so tightly. 
and to be held by You. To give of our resources, to give of our time that we might see an eternal legacy in the lives of our neighbors and of our friends. May what we do in giving of our lives and of our money do bring about that lasting legacy. For the sake of Your name, I pray all this in Jesus' name.